scriptures. Romans 8 is what we're doing today. If you want to turn there, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you for how you meet us right at the point of our need. We ask you here in these moments as we open your word, would you give us revelation? Would you give us your wisdom? And would you shine a light into every dark realm of our own hearts and help us then, Lord, by your mercy, by your grace, to obey you and respond to what you're doing. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember I was 16 years old, and uh, I had a girlfriend. And uh, this girlfriend, you know, we'd been dating a while, and I also had a job at Wendy's. Wendy's. Do you... If you've ever had a job at Wendy's, I mean, thank God for it. Wendy's hamburgers, they're pretty good. But I, I worked there for like three and a half years, all through my teenage years. And um, the smell of grease, I know it well. And those outfits in those days were striped, like striped shirts, you know, and they were ug- really, really ugly. And I had a weird little hat that I had to wear. It was awful. So after I got off work, I went to my girlfriend's house. And we were watching some TV, and, I, and, and, and it's... You know, this moment came, this moment of decision. And her parents are off in another room over there. We're sitting in the family room by ourselves watching TV. I'm like, should I kiss her? Should I not? So as I'm thinking about it, you know, I'm thinking about how I could get to the moment Now it's the stretch move. Some of you think it's like passe, it's like old, but when I was doing it, it was brand new. So it was like, it was fresh. And uh, I, uh, you know, I was, I, I was wrestling with her. I mean, her, her parents are in the house somewhere, and so I don't know exactly what's going on, but I was tempted. And then I could tell as I read the situation, she wanted to kiss me. Thanks, Dad. That's all I need from you. <laughs> so, so the moment came, oh, and I did what any good pastor's kid would do. I kissed her. <laughs> Eyes closed, lips locked, right? Um, there's, this, there's, there's this magic that's happening here in this sweet innocent moment and suddenly I hear the voice of God what are you doing in reality it was her dad who'd come around the corner and said what are you doing (laughs) I mean it was so funny he did it on purpose he tried he he came from around the corner and you know we can't see him coming because he's coming down the opposite hall he's just coming he kind of jumped in and what's going on in here and we were like And, and she was so, it scared her so much. She was so embarrassed. She started, he, 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 like, he like realized there was something going on, so he left, went into the kitchen. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey. And then, and then she starts crying. She's so embarrassed. I'm super embarrassed. I'm like, what an idiot. I'm a skinny, scrawny kid in a Wendy's uniform. I was kissing his daughter. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do here. This is super awkward. I get up and I go into the kitchen. And Mr. Paddock, I'm so sorry for whatever you saw there. <laughs> She's like, what do you say? I'm 16 years old. I have no idea what to say. I said, I respect your daughter. I'm blah, blah, blah. I, whatever I said, it didn't mean anything. It was like, blah, 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 blah. Like, I can't remember words coming out of my mouth, but it was awful. And then he just looked at me as he was getting his popcorn, and he's like, yeah, I really appreciate that, Ross. That's really good. Just want you guys to be good. Then he took his popcorn down the hall, <laughs> sent me back to the TV room, where I sat this far away from her for the rest of the night. And I never kissed a girl again until my wedding day. Okay, you're right, but let's move on. All of us can identify with this idea of getting caught. This idea of suddenly getting caught and the guilt and the fear and the, oh my 
my goodness. It's like you're on the road and you're driving down 290 or somewhere 71, I-35, and suddenly out of the corner of your, you're going 70 and a 55, and you can see out of the corner of your eye, but you see him too late. There he is. He's got his radar gun on you. He's like, and you're like, Oh, Jesus, 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 help me, help me. You take your foot off the gas. <laughs> Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. Good prayer, just a little late. And then, and then if those lights go on, you're like, oh, my goodness. And it always makes you, like, panic kind of sets in for a moment. You're, the, the lights start going, and he's following you, and then he pulls over the car beside you. <laughs> and you're like, oh. That is awesome. Come on, admit it. You're like, you, you're like, that is so awesome. And then you're like, thank you, Jesus, as if Jesus made him give a ticket to the other guy. It's like this, this sense of feeling caught, condemned, fear, shame. We all understand it. Before Easter, we were making our way through the book of Romans. We called it life in the balance because there's so much tension in what's going on and what Paul is talking about here with justice and mercy and, and how God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And it's a scene in chapters one through four of a courtroom and, and Paul's making arguments back and forth about mankind's guilt or innocence towards God. Spoiler alert, everybody's guilty. And there's godlessness, wickedness, self-righteousness. He's, he's going through it. Chapter 5 says that Paul says even though all of this evil is, being, is happening in the world, wickedness is increasing, he, he makes the argument that God's grace is going to increase more and more. God's grace is going to increase more and more. In chapter 6, Paul argues that just because God's grace is increasing, we shouldn't misuse it. We should never just treat it as a license to sin because sin in any form creates death within us and separation from God. And then chapter 7, Paul is continuing and he makes it personal. He says, this is really a thing. This is a problem in my life. And he makes the case that the problem, our problem, my problem, your problem, our biggest problem isn't the devil. It isn't your spouse. It isn't your boss. It isn't the people on I-35. <laughs> My biggest problem is me. And I have this civil war raging inside of me. And we all do. The civil war between this new nature and this old nature, this nature that Christ has placed inside my life by his spirit, and this old nature that wants to continue to get me to act in the patterns of my past and my history. And finally, out of complete frustration and disillusionment and hopelessness, he reaches this conclusion in Romans 7.24. And you can read it with me there in your message notes. He says, I've tried everything and nothing helps, he says in the Message Bible. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? See, he gives up on himself and his ability to change anything. He gets a flash of hope, though, an answer. Verse 25, he says, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Listen, Jesus is the answer to the civil war raging inside of you. He is the answer. Now today we're turning the corner as we continue our study and we're going to call the last half of Romans life in the spirit because there is a spiritual life that you're being called to, a new creation that's inside of each one of us as we come to Christ, as we come to Jesus. And when you came in, you, you got a little piece of paper on your seat. And I, I just want you to take that out right now. You also have a Bible that was on your seat, and that's, that's your Bible today. I'm giving you that Bible. And you can give it away, or you can keep it. We're going to use it here as an illustration here in a few moments. But if you look at the piece of paper that you have, 
I want you to think of it as your life. It's your life. And while I'm speaking over the next few minutes, I want you to do something with it that illustrates your life. I have mine, and I've already done some things that illustrate what it is and what's happened to my life and the, some of the hurts and some of the wounds I've experienced, some of the things that have torn my heart in two, some of the things that have happened. So I just want you to do that right now. Do something with this piece of paper that reflects your life. You can, you, you, you can crumble it up if you want to. You can crumple it. You can like tear it a little bit, thinking about things. Some of you are like, some of you are like, oh, I don't know, I feel so weird. I mean, if you want to get it down on the ground and stomp on it like that boss did to you that one time. You know, if you, if, there's, there's all kinds of things that have happened in your history. And sometimes it's like a ton of little tiny cuts, little tiny wounds. Other times it's like a hole, there's something missing. You put a little hole in your in your life, in one season of your life, and you, you just realize life has been hard, and just while I'm speaking over the next few minutes, I want you to continue to just make a mark on this. You can, and you can do whatever you want to. You write on it. You can, you can make it yours, but it needs to reflect your life. You can keep going here for a few minutes. Romans 8 is probably the most, one of the most pivotal chapters in all of Scripture. It's one of the most significant chapters written on the Christian life, and it has so much to say. There's like 10 messages, 10 sermons in chapter 8 alone. We, and I'm not going to preach 10 sermons, don't worry, this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just teach one. I can't get to the whole thing, so that's why you've got to read it along with me. In your time of reading the Bible this week, Read through Romans 8. That's your homework. Because there's so much about the life of the Spirit, what God's doing in your life, what He wants to do in your life. But I don't think we can get to it unless we get the first two verses. So we're going to spend time today on the first two verses. And you can keep kind of crumbling or ripping or stomping on your paper and make it reflect your life here as we begin to look at chapter 8. Eight, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'd like you to say no condemnation. No condemnation. Say it one more time. No it's kind of like hard to say in a way, right? It's like no condemnation. Sure, I believe that. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law, listen to this, of the spirit, the law of the spirit of life. One translation says, the law of the spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The spirit and life, sin and death. Spirit and life overcome sin and death. That's what's happened to you. That's what's happened to me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a powerful phrase, isn't it? So we have to ask ourselves, what is condemnation? What is condemnation is a word that we don't use as much as we used to, but it means criticism, sentencing to a punishment. One way to describe uh, condemnation is to talk about how we feel, how you feel, because very often, you and I will feel the condemnation of our own hearts and our own souls. And if you're, if you're filling out your message notes today, this is kind of your first fill in the blanks. If with condemnation, you feel guilt. You know you did something wrong. You got caught and you're with your hand in the cookie jar, <laughs> like I did in my girlfriend's family room. That feeling, uh-oh, something's wrong when the siren is going off behind you. You feel guilt. You feel fear, fear of punishment. 
oh no, I did something wrong. You don't just feel guilty. You actually are afraid that you're going to get punished for it. So you have fear. And then you feel self-rejection. I blew it. Oh, what's wrong with me? Have you ever said that? What is wrong with me? I'm so stupid. What an idiot to, to make these mistakes. Self-rejection. Guilt, fear, self-rejection. That's what condemnation is. It's like a condemned building. You know what they do with condemned buildings? They, they get rid of them. There's an, an, an inspector that goes in and, and evaluates the building and looks at the building and says, this building is not safe. It's dangerous and it's not good enough to be used anymore. We condemn it. And I think some of us, some, we feel like God says that to us sometimes. You're not good enough to be used anymore. Here's what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. He doesn't want his followers to live with those feelings. That's what he's saying. No guilt, no fear, no self-condemnation and rejection. So the question becomes, how is that possible? Is that really possible? Because when I do something wrong, that's exactly how I feel. I feel that condemnation. I feel condemned. The real issue that we have to address is the one that we're all wondering about even right now. And that is, how does God respond to me when I sin? How does God respond to me when I sin? This is a big idea. And if we don't understand how God responds to us when we sin, we're going to avoid God out of fear. We're not going to... We're not going to feel close to him. We're, not, we're going to end up running away from him rather than running towards him. How does God respond to me when I, hate, when I, when I sin? I, I think we have to explore this, and we have to explore it from the perspective of those who are following Jesus. And I want, I want, I want you to see this. Those who have given their lives to Jesus. How does God respond to me when I sin? Number one, God doesn't reject me when I sin. God doesn't reject me when I sin. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. In other words, all the people who he's given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. If you're a Jesus follower, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you're in the, in the act of surrendering, because it is a journey. It is a process. I hate, to, I hate to tell you this, but most of you already know it. As soon as you come to Jesus, all your problems don't disappear. In fact, you get some new ones. But there's a process by which you go through dealing with what God is doing in your life but you have to do it from the perspective that he's never going to reject you. Which means God accepts you even when you sin. God accepts you even when you sin. Here's why. God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. Romans 9.15 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is saying, my love for you is not dependent on how you react to it. I choose to love you. I choose to have mercy on you. My love is unconditional. It's not, I love you if. It's, I love you, period. Imagine a wedding, a wedding where the couple stands up and says, I'm going to love you through the hard times and the good times. If we have enough money, I'm going to love you no matter what, rich or poor, as long as you work really hard. As long as you don't lose your job. As long as, you, and we put, attach all these conditions. You have to understand that's not what God is doing to you and to me. His love is unconditional. Why? Because Jesus, check this out, because Jesus met the conditions already. 
the conditions for us. Sin causes separation and death, but Jesus conquered death and, and can take care of every sin. Jesus met the conditions for all that. And so we've got to understand that this is God's perspective. And so God's love is unconditional. Next, God accepts you even when you sin because your acceptance is not based on your performance. It's not based on your performance. Romans 9.16 says, It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. I am a firstborn child. I have perfectionist tendencies. I measure everything. I overanalyze. I have had real trouble with this concept in my life. I've been a Christian since I was a little boy. And I, I went through this many seasons in my life where I just thought God loved me because he had to. You ever feel like that? Of course he has to. He's God and he has to love me and and all this was sort of based on my performance. If my performance is good enough, he's really happy. If I, if, I can, if I can win people to Jesus, he's super happy. If my church can grow, then he's super happy with me. But if my church grows, if I don't win people to Jesus, if I go through a season where it's really hard, he's not very happy with me and my performance is everything. So I'm not sure he even really loves me. You see how it goes. Your acceptance is not based on your is not based on your performance. God's love and God's salvation is solely dependent on his mercy. And that's it. <laughs> solely dependent on his mercy for you, and that's it. God accepts you even when you sin, because your acceptance is based on your position in Christ. Your position in Christ. That's what Romans 8 is all about. No condemnation for who? Who's he talking to? He's talking to this little group of, of, of Jews and Gentiles in Rome. This fledgling little church in Rome. And they're gathering together and he's writing them this letter. And he's saying, don't misunderstand the God you serve. Don't misunderstand what you've learned about him. I want to clarify for you. If you have chosen Christ, if you've chosen Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You are not condemned. You don't ever have to suffer under fear and guilt and self-rejection again. Sin is no longer the problem. Those words, in Christ. Everybody say it with me. In Christ. They're the most popular phrase that Paul uses to describe Jesus' followers 167 times throughout the New Testament. He says that we are in Christ. In other letters like Ephesians, Paul writes to the, the believers in Ephesus. He says, he says that he calls it being united with Christ, united with him, which is an even more powerful illustration or imagery because often we're, we use this term Jesus follower and we should follow him like his disciples followed him. But the idea of being united with Christ is an even more intimate and personal miracle that happens in our hearts. You got to remember that what's happening to you and to me when we come to Christ is there is a new creation on the inside of us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. A new thing happens inside here, way down deep on the inside of you where all the real problems are. You think all the problems are these, you know, external things that you are addicted to. And no, the problem's way down here on the inside, and he changes that. He makes it new. You're, you, you become what he calls born again. I know, I know. Some of you are like, I've heard this one before. Sometimes the most important thing we can do is revisit. We don't really need, we don't really need new truths. We need to really get the ancient ones down on the inside of us. A new creation happens way down here. Make no mistake, Christianity is an inside-out process. It's not an outside-in. It's not, oh, I got to do this, I should do this. Don't get a bad case of the shoulds. You, 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 it happens in here. 
There's, a, there's a, an awakening. There is a, a birth. There's a spiritual birth. It's incredible what's happening. Your, your perspective changes. The new creation happens. And then suddenly, everything looks different. But as we've spoken about already in, in Romans, you're still living in this body. He's working his way out of you. And when you sin, you're going to have to understand how God responds to you. Oh, well, Pastor Ross, I'm just never going to sin anymore. Good luck with that. That's awesome. I believe that what we're talking about here this morning and understanding that there's no condemnation in those who are, for those who are in Christ is the secret to conquering sin. It's one of the most important things you can get to overcome the sins of your past, the patterns of your yesterdays that want to take over in your life, the, the appetites of your flesh. This is what Romans 8 is all about, this idea of being in Christ by the work of the Spirit. It means the nature of God is in us by His Spirit. The righteousness of God is in us by His Spirit. The hope of God is in us way down here, and He's starting to work His way out through our, through our history and through our issues and through our minds and and he's working his way in us. And, and this is why it's called faith. We have to have faith that Christ is working in us. Here's what Romans 3.21 says. It says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So have you ever felt like God is far away from you when you sin? He's like a million miles away and he, he's rejected you and he's, and he's turned his back on you and he's disgusted with you. Listen to me. Listen to me, Smalls. It's a movie. Look it up. Listen to me, Smalls. God does not want you to live with those feelings dominating your life. Those feelings, let me say it a little stronger, those feelings are not from God. They're from your brain your super intellectual, powerful human brain. They come from, from here or they come from your, the enemy of your soul, the devil himself, to say that he's nowhere near you, he's rejected you, it's over, you're not useful anymore. It's like the old bumper sticker, if, if, if God seems far away, guess who moved? It's not him. God doesn't reject you even when you sin because you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, God will never reject you. He'll never leave you. He will never treat you as an enemy. He will always treat you as a son or a daughter. This is one of the things it, it means to live without condemnation, with no condemnation. No matter what you do, God will never wipe you out. No matter what you do, he will never reject you because you're in Christ Jesus. God doesn't reject me. Just like the prodigal son, one of the most powerful stories in all the Bible is Luke 15. And it's the, the prodigal son that leaves his home. He asks his father for his inheritance. He goes and he spends it wildly until there's nothing left. And he's sitting in a pig pen. And his father, the whole time, is just waiting. Just, just ready. Just waiting for him to come to the end of himself. And when he comes to the end of himself, he comes home and he finds his father right there. So how does God respond to me when I sin? Number two, God is not angry at me when I'm inconsistent. God is not angry at me when I'm inconsistent. And you think this is a New Testament idea, like, oh, this is, this is something only in the New Testament. No, it's, this is God's character all the way through. Look at the Old Testament. You will find these phrases all through the Old Testament. Here's one. Nehemiah 9.17 says, They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. He's talking about God's people. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you, check this out. You can underline it in your, in your notes. But you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even under the old covenant, he did not desert them. And the whole, 
the whole new covenant, New Testament, it's such a better covenant. You gotta, you gotta see what's really happening here. We get, and we get angry on ourselves, don't we? Like we get angry, we get impatient, but God doesn't. And I know there are verses that talk about the patience of God, but it's because we, it's, it's, we only have a certain amount of words to try to describe this incredible being of the universe, this creator of all things, and, and, and we're limited in our ability to describe how he works. Because think about this, think about this, just for a second, right? How does an eternal God, okay, check it out, no beginning, no end, how does an eternal God actually become impatient? A God who doesn't exist in, within the boundaries of time, he's eternal. How does, how does he actually get impatient? He doesn't. He works with us. Or how about this? How does an all-knowing God ever become disappointed? That'll mess you up. One of the most beautiful truths you can learn in Scripture is that God is patient with you. He understands it takes time for you to grow. So even when you're inconsistent, he's still patient with you, and he doesn't condemn you. Here's why. God knows what I'm made of. He knows what I'm made of. Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14 says this, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. You ever heard the story of the preacher who was praying this verse? One Sunday, this preacher, he, he prayed it out. Dear Lord, you know that we are but dust. And he would have continued, but at that moment, a little six-year-old girl turned to her mom and in a very loud voice said, Mom, what is butt dust? <laughs> Think about it. There's a revelation there. God knows exactly what you're made of. He knows you're a human being. He knows your struggle with sin. He knows you're not perfect. I'm teaching my son Owen to cut the grass, and over the last few several weeks, we've been working on it. And his body's just old enough at 11 to kind of manhandle the the lawnmower, and he can, you know, pull the thing and it turns on. and And so I'm, I'm training him how to do it. And it wouldn't be stupid if the first time I showed him how to mow the lawn, he, I, I I left him out there. He mowed it. I came back, and there was little blades of grass sticking up everywhere, and he missed a section. And I just came out there and said, "Oh, you are so stupid. What is wrong with you? You're never mowing the grass again. Get in the house." house. <laughs> Some of you just had flashbacks to your childhood. I'm sorry. I, I, listen, God is not that kind of parent. I am having such a fun experience watching Owen learn how to cut the grass. And his first time, he's right here on the front row, it looked pretty good. But we had to walk around and go, oh, do you see this? You see this? Okay, just go back over it. Just go back over there and get it. Here, a little closer to the rocks, a little bit more. And, and this last week when he did it, it was like infinitely better than it was his first time. And as he grows and as he, as he matures, you know what it does? It brings joy to me. It doesn't make me mad that he can't get it right. Well, maybe a little bit, but I'm, but I'm not God. No, no, it doesn't. I, I'm, I'm thrilled with his progression. That's how God is with you and me. He doesn't look at you and say, you blew it. How stupid could you be? In order to be disappointed with somebody, you have to expect them to do something different. God knows how you're made. God already knows the mistakes that you're going to make. He knows all the sins you've ever committed and, and, and the ones you will. God can't be disappointed because it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise. God isn't angry with you when you're inconsistent. God's not angry with you because Jesus understands. Jesus understands because he's been there too. Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Everybody say confidence. Confidence. No, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. God doesn't get uptight with us because Jesus has been there. And God sent Jesus so that you would know that he knows. He came to earth. He experienced the same temptations you and I experience. He knew the same hassles. He, knew, he knows where we're coming from. He knows what's going on. When you come to Jesus and you're born again, right? You have this spiritual birth. You are in him. He is in you. You don't have to worry that whenever you sin, that you have to somehow hide from God. Because that's what we typically do, isn't it? We hide. We run from God instead of to God. But listen to me. If you don't hear anything else in this message, this is what you need to hear. And it's not even in your message notes. I want you to write it. It is this idea. Running to God is how. Everybody say how. How. Running to God is how we get over sin. It's how we get over sin. It's how we work through it. It's how we deal with it. It's how we realize that it has no power over us, that we're just thinking with our old nature. Romans 8, if you go down a few verses, it says, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The old NIV translation says, the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Yes, God is into mind control. What he wants you to see is that you are operating according to a whole different nature. It is the nature of his spirit that lives within you. And if you'll surrender to that, and I think one of the things that you have to get, you and I all have to get this. This is the seed of the gospel, the truth of the good news. It's not good news when you first come to Christ, and then it's bad news the rest of the time. Because you should have known better. You see how good news can get, become bad news suddenly? It's good news the whole way through. It's good news until the day you meet him. It's good news all the way through. And once you start to realize that's how he sees you, that's how he knows you, that's how he loves you, something happens and, and the sins that used to have you bound begin to fall away. God is never angry with you because you're inconsistent. Isn't that freeing? The hardest lesson I've ever had to learn as the follower of Jesus is the fact that God doesn't get impatient with me when I fall and fail over and over again. And if you've ever felt like, "I've, I've committed this sin so many times, I'm embarrassed to ask forgiveness again. Surely God, I mean, this is how stupid the the process is in your brain, right? Surely God's going to say, when I ask this time, nope, that's it. It's over. Ran out. Sorry. I had a bunch for you, but you've just too many times. Not this time. No. That's not what he's saying. He's not, he'll never come to the end of his mercy. His mercy will never run out. He's never going to say to you, oh, it's over. Too bad for you, Tristan. He's never going to say that. Number three, God doesn't punish me when I sin. God doesn't punish me when I, what is punishment? Punishment is payment for past sin. If all of us have sinned, if that's true, if all of us have sinned, you're thinking in your mind, why doesn't God punish me? Ah, the answer is this really fun idea. The answer, why doesn't God punish me, is because of the law of double jeopardy. It's in our court system. It's in our, the, the, the law of double jeopardy. The only reason any of you might know this is because you've watched a movie or something. But the law of double jeopardy says, the law of double jeopardy says once you've, you've, you're punished for a crime, you can't be convicted and punished again for the same crime. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, for Christ died for sins once for all 
the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The Bible says that Jesus took all the punishment for every single sin that I've committed, every single sin that I will ever commit. Every, he took the punishment of my sin 2,000 years ago. He took it. The punishment has been dispensed. It's over. The case is, the case is undone. Which means God didn't put the punishment of my sins on Jesus just so that he could come back to me 2,000 years ago and say, yeah, that really wasn't quite enough. I'm going to have to have some more from you. Do you see how silly that would be? But somehow in our minds, we think this, that wasn't enough. You're going to have to pay as well. When we fail to understand this idea, then we sin and we're expecting God to punish us so you get sick or you lose your job. This is how it works, right, in the real world. You get sick, you lose your job, you, you have financial difficulty, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that, that, that's it. God must be paying me back for my sin. It's like immediate. Bad things happen in your life, and suddenly you think it's God punishing you. Nothing could be further from the gospel truth. Nothing could be further from the good news. It's a misunderstanding of his character and his nature. It's a misunderstanding of what's been done at the cross. Some people are stuck believing that God is punishing them for something they did 20 years ago because they've never settled this idea. Listen to me, everybody. God's not trying to get even with you. He's not that petty. He's not trying to make you pay. He's settled the score. He settled everything at the cross. That's what it means to live with no condemnation. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you want to follow after him, your sins have been paid for. God doesn't hold a grudge against you. He doesn't call you back and say, I, 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 I got to have you pay some more. You're not an enemy. You're his kid. You're his child. He's never going to do that to you. When you understand how God deals with our sins, it takes all, away all the feelings of condemnation, the feelings of guilt, the fear, rejection. And instead of running away from God, now I want to run to him because I know he's the answer. I know he's the solution. I know he's not going to turn me away. I know that he's going to just walk with me. The answer to every sin is to turn to him. Turn back to him. 1 John 1, 9 says that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now that word confess, confess in the Greek means to speak the same, which, which means, confession simply means I agree with God. Oh, there I am. I am so human. Oh God, you already knew that. I agree with you. I am such, I am so in need. I agree with you. And that's why I'm coming back to you. I can do nothing in and of myself. I agree with you, God. I got to rely on you. I got to depend on you for everything. I need your spirit. I need your life. I need all that you have for me. There's nothing I can do without you. I'm in trouble without you. God, I look to you. I worship you. I come to you. You're everything to me. You see how it starts to roll on and on and pretty soon you realize that every morning you got to get up with the same heart with the same attitude and you realize I'm nothing today without you God Lord would you fill me with your spirit and would you go through this process with me that I'm in the circumstances the situation Lord I know you're near me I believe because I know what you've done I believe the good news about you it's called faith faith Here's what I agree with God means. Notice that confession does not mean to beg. Please, 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 God, forgive me. <laughs> please. One more time. Please. It's like he already had, he, he, he's ready. You don't have to beg. The second thing, confession does not mean to bargain. God, if you'll forgive me, I'll never do X again. I'll never do this again. If you'll just forgive me this one time, I'll never... Listen, that's just crazy. If you do that over and over again, you'll find yourself running around this little thing. And if, if, you're, if you're a gossip, it'll be a lifelong struggle if that's your prayer. You'll, you'll repeat the sin in 24 hours because it's, it's like this, this way of thinking from fear, bargaining with God. It's overly negative it's like this thing that gets in your, in your heart. 
And if you don't understand how he is towards you, you'll be back there again and again and again. So stop bargaining. My kids kind of have this thing where they chant together to get something that they want. Have you ever seen this? Like, they, it's, it starts at the dinner table or something. Hey, let's go here. Let's go. After church sometimes, like, they'll, they'll okay, where are we going for lunch? And they'll be like, Freddy's, Freddy's, Fred. I'm like, I don't want to go to Freddy's, Freddy. I don't like Fred. Freddy's, Fred. Like, as if that's going to work. And it, sadly, it does sometimes. But I, <laughs> this is not the thing to do with God. Confession does not mean, finally, to bribe. God, if you'll forgive me, I'll read my Bible every day. I promise I'll witness every day. I'll do all kinds of good stuff. I promise. That's some kind of weird enslavement. All you got to do is speak the same. Admit it. It requires humility. It requires consistency. It requires you to go to the same place to admit it. Whenever we try to bribe God, to bargain with God, to beg God, it shows that we're still living under condemnation. Still, we're still living under fear and guilt and rejection. And so the life of God has trouble taking hold. God's Spirit is wanting to set you free. Hebrews 4.16 in the Amplified says, Let us then fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of God's unmerited favor to us as sinners, that we may receive mercy for our failures and find grace to help in good time for every need, appropriate help and well-timed help coming just when we need it. When you truly understand how God responds to you when you sin, that's when you can fearlessly and confidently run to God. You have no hesitation. It's like my little kids, when they were small and they just ran to me no matter what. There's an innocence that comes into your soul because you know it's only when you draw near to God that you're able to overcome sin. And so getting as close to him as you can is the secret to dealing with it. That's what Romans 8, 1 and 2 is all about. The reason we are no longer under, under condemnation is because we are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to take out that piece of paper that represents your life. You've crinkled it up. You've, it's represented all kinds of hurt and failures and struggles in your life, foolishness of every kind, mistakes, wounds from other people. I want you to take that Bible that you were given now. That Bible, there's a Bible around in every seat. This is your Bible. You can take it home or you can give it away. Take it with you, give it to somebody else if you don't need it, but it's your Bible. I'm giving it to you today. And I want you to begin to fold up your piece of paper. Maybe, maybe just fold it twice. And I want you to take the Bible and I want you to open it up. And I want you to put it in there. And then I want you to close it. Just put it right in the middle of that Bible. And when you hold that Bible in front of you, what do you see? Do you see your life? No, you only see the Bible. Because it's in the Bible. In John 1, John calls Jesus the Word of God. He's the Word, the message for our lives. And He wants us to live in Him, in the message. You don't see the paper. You don't see what's torn. You don't see the dirty. You don't see the, the marked up, the tattered edges. You don't see any of it. You only see God's Word, God's truth to you, God's message to you. That's what being in Christ is. It's believing the message. You can't see your life, but all you can see is the story of God. The story, and your story has been folded into his story, and it's an incredible thing that he's doing in your life. When you're in Christ, God looks at you and doesn't see your mistakes or imperfections. He sees you in Christ, and Jesus is perfect. And for God to reject you, he'd have to reject Jesus, and he doesn't. 
bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And as we come to this table, I want you to, I really want you to let him speak to you. Let him speak to you about what's going on in your life. Maybe you've never understood that this is really this good of news. Let that come alive in you today. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you have suffered under fear and guilt and condemnation for years. Would you consider bringing any of that to this table this morning? Because this table has the bread and the cup, which represents the body and the blood of Christ Jesus. And I want you to see that you can come here and you can give all of these things to God. Give, give these, these yesterdays to Him. You can give your way of thinking over to Him. And I'm going to pray that God will renew your mind and begin to change the way you think about Him. And I want you to think about taking this bread. And when you take the bread, there is something powerful in the, in the example, in the illustration, because you're, you're actually taking the bread and you're eating it. You're, you're taking Him into yourself. You're becoming united with Him. He's becoming one with you. One with you. He's in you. You're in Him. That's the miracle of the table of the Lord. Let that miracle come alive to you today. Father, we just ask you for revelation. We ask you for wisdom. We ask you for help to evaluate our lives on the, in the right way. Spirit of God, would you speak to us now? Would you show us your kindness through the brokenness of Christ? As we come to this table, let your spirit come alive in us as we take in the bread and the cup and that we are forgiven, that we are healed that you're doing something awesome and beautiful in us. Regardless of our imperfections and our mistakes and our failures and our sins, thank you for that, Lord. Help us to live in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.